Welcome to the public morality. After two years of considerable improvement, the Annenberg Public Policy Center's annual civic survey revealed that Americans' knowledge of some basic facts about their government has fallen, with less than half of those surveyed able to name the three branches of government. At a time when many Americans feel as democracy is at risk, what does it say that many don't know the basics of their democratic republican form of government? To discuss the results of the survey, I'm joined by a renowned scholar and director of the Annenberg Center, Professor Kathleen Hall Jameson. Kathleen Hall Jameson, welcome to the Thank Public Morality. So Let's begin by having you offer a, a distillation of your findings about um, Americans and their civic knowledge 2022. Well, Americans don't know as much as we'd like about their system of government. Um, most people can't name three branches of government, for example. Most people can't name the protections in the First Amendment. And what that means for practical purposes is that they can't make sense of much of what's happening in the news. And if they don't really know how the branches work, you wonder whether when they vote for elected representatives, whether they're going to cast a vote that makes sense for them, because they may hear, for example, that a presidential candidate promises, if I'm elected, I will do X, but it requires congressional consent. And if Congress is held by the other party, they're not likely to get it through. And as a result, that might be a really disappointed voter who would have been less disappointed if they understood that you really have to have your party in control in Congress and be on your side on an issue and propose the issue and get it voted on before you're going to be able to act on many of those promises. So what I'm hearing you say right there is that a lack of civic knowledge and just sort of the basics of how a system work could lead to entrenched apathy. Would that be accurate? It could lead to apathy and it also could lead to a, a response to an election outcome that says, well, they all betray me all the time because they promised me things and that then they don't deliver when in fact they couldn't deliver. We know that, and this, this is astonishing to most people, that most candidates who are elected to high public office, that would be Senate, Congress, governorships, and presidency, do try to act on most of the promises that they make. So when they don't succeed in getting that action implemented into law, that usually means that something in the configuration of power blocked that intent. And so understanding checks and balances is really important, particularly as we listen to people campaigning for public office. Now, now, how do, does the 20, 2022 findings line up with, say, 2020 and 2021? We saw an uptick, pretty substantial uptick in the two prior years in both knowledge of branches and in knowledge of the freedoms protected in the First, protected in the first Amendment. And we, the, the drop back this year drops us back to the place we were at before those two years in which we had the jump. So the interesting question is, why did we have the increase um, basically during the pandemic years? And part of the explanation, I think, is that those years coincided with high levels of media coverage of conflict between the branches. So when you have impeachment proceedings and then you have hearings and you have lots of national visibility and then the House has a role and the Senate has a role, suddenly you become aware that there's a congressional role and there's an executive role and the congressional folks can put a check on the presidency if they can get the votes in the House and in the Senate. So visibility about the branches increased because of contests between the branches. We had contentious matters moving toward the Supreme Court. That increases your, your understanding that 
oh, there is a court there. Something might be held to be unconstitutional. And as a result, even though we thought it was the law of the land, it might in fact be changed because you've got a constitutional issue. So we think the reason that we had increased top of mind recall of branches was the branches were in the news more. And what that tells me as a person who studies politics is an assumption we used to make about civics, which is once you've learned it, you've learned it, isn't actually right. Uh, what we think we see in those data is that the, when you, you have the knowledge way back in your head someplace, but it's not top of mind, you can't readily recall it, but it's easier to recall it once you've got it in the news. Same thing with the freedoms in the First Amendment. We had the, the protests following the death of George Floyd, for example. So now we have the issue, what, what are the rights to peaceably assemble? We had freedom of speech issues as a result tied to peaceable assembly. We had the riot at the Capitol. Same question. When is this peaceable assembly and when is it not? So the freedoms of the First Amendment were at issue too. We think that's the explanation for why we saw that substantial increase over those two, those two past years. So the drop is actually a drop back to the past average. Hmm. So... Uh, looking at some of the numbers, and I'll, I'll start. You, you you initially talked about the the uh, branches of government. Uh, but some of the numbers that I saw from your from your recent study: the forty seven percent can name all three, eighteen percent can name two, eleven percent can name one. Uh, my math is not that good, but I believe that's seventy six percent. So the, did that mean there were twenty four percent of respondents who couldn't name any branch of government? Yes, we kind of round it because there are always decimal points in there. So I, I, I say roughly one in four. And yeah, the, that, that's really problematic, not, not simply because you, know, you want people to understand the news at the national level, but because our structures of government down to the state and local level are structured around the idea of judicial responsibilities, executive responsibilities, and legislative responsibilities. So if you want to figure out who's got responsibility to do what in your local community, it helps to know who votes it through to put it on the books as legal, who ultimately is the one who has to approve or whatever and execute. And as a result, you know where to exercise your power, whom you want to influence to get your changes. So most of us will have most of our power as citizens, not at the federal level, although sometimes one vote will make a difference at the federal level, but at the local level where We've got real community problems, and one or two people can make a real difference. Um, and then, then when it, you also mentioned the First Amendment, and, and, and your findings there were 63% could name freedom of speech, 24% uh, religion, 20% press, 16% peaceful assembly, and 6% uh, petition the government. Now, when I articulated all four, all five of those, I could think of something in the last several years that mm -hmm. reminded me of one of those issues. Mm -hmm. So talk about, if you would, the significance that America's collective understanding of the First Amendment in particular has dropped over the last couple of years. Well, the, the reason that I worry about that is because we not only make our voices heard by voting, but our system protects our right to voice our grievances to stand up to government, to stand up and say, I oppose this, this is wrong, this is an injustice, I want to see this change. And freedom of speech and freedom of assembly are intimately tied. So we have a right to protest, peaceably assemble, peaceably is important, but we have a right to protest. So to the extent that we don't recognize that those are protected rights, we might not exercise them. 
And the same thing occurs in rights protected elsewhere inside the Bill of Rights. Uh, for example, you know, we want people to know that a judge can't require you to testify your, against yourself if you're put in a situation in which your freedom is at jeopardy in a trial. So these are important rights. We want people to cherish them, understand them, exercise them. And there's some other rights outside the First Amendment, but in, in the Bill of Rights that we want people to understand and we want them to understand why they want to exercise them. When you're called to serve on a jury, you're protecting other people in your community from an unjust attempt to incarcerate, or you're trying to adjudicate something in a civil matter that is highly consequential for individuals, potentially individuals like you. And so your rights are protected by your going into jury service and protecting the rights of others. And your safety is protected in criminal cases in particular, when you serve on a jury, if you ensure that those who have done wrong are held accountable. So you know, thinking of jury service, not as a terrible burden I'd like to get out of, but as a responsibility of citizenship that increases our likelihood that we protect each other from injustices is another way of saying, if we don't understand we have the rights, we might not exercise them. And that might ultimately hurt us and our communities in important ways. Hmm. You, know, you know, it strikes me, uh, still staying with just the concepts of the First Amendment, that oftentimes the First Amendment per se is not mentioned in a particular news story, mm -hmm. but it's still it's still present. I mean, as you alluded earlier, you talked about uh, George Floyd, you talked about January 6th, and then these are First Amendment issues. Is, is this peaceful assembly January 6th is, you know, uh, I can't breathe. I mean, what I mean, what is that? But I guess my question to you is, do we need in, in your research, do we need it to be spelled out? This is a First Amendment issue uh, or some other pertaining to the Bill of Rights for us to recognize this is a First Amendment or Bill of Rights issue? Yeah, I think the, the reason it is not so important that you know the right is in the First Amendment as that you know you have the right and that you know that you're protected from Congress making a law that would infringe on that right. So the the, the, the concept that it's in the Bill of Rights is for me more important than it's in the First Amendment. And there are some people who answer our First Amendment question by putting the right to own a gun in the First Amendment. Well, there is a right to own a gun established by the Supreme, established as in the Constitution by the Supreme Court. It's not in the First Amendment, but it's important that people know that, that right is there too. So you're raising an important question about how we ask these questions. And I've thought about it and thought in the past, maybe what we should say is protected in the Bill of Rights, but the problem is there's so many other rights there that you won't be able to ask that and get open-ended recall that lets, that lets people prompt themselves into an understanding of the interlocking rights of the First Amendment. And that's part of the reason for, for focusing on First Amendment is the rights there are interlocking in a way that the rights specified elsewhere aren't. And we think as a result that since it's taught as First Amendment rights, and since it is about what Congress can't do, that it's important to ask it as a First Amendment question. But I, I think you're raising an important point. It's possible that some people know that their rights in the Bill of Rights, they just don't know they're in the First Amendment. And they're hearing First Amendment say, no, it's not there. And as a result, not giving us the answer. Yeah, I was also struck that less than half of respondents knew that the Supreme Court was the final arbiter on constitutional questions. And that was particularly striking to me in a year where the court has made key decisions on climate change, immigration, the Second Amendment, church and state, as well as abortion. I don't want to sound the alarm, but how concerning is this 
Um, and can we turn it around? Yeah, well, first, the, the, what we didn't ask this year, but we have asked in other years, is whether the public understands the difference between a Supreme Court ruling that is grounded in an interpretation of the Constitution instead of that is grounded in a reading of a statute. So the, the reading of a statute, Congress could change the statute. So the, the reason that question says on a constitutional matter is that's where the Supreme Court's got the final say. Supreme Court doesn't have the final say on the interpretation of a statute. As we can remember with the, when the Lily Ledbetter case came through and justice against a woman who didn't even know that her rights had been infringed on, the law was so technically crafted that she had clearly had, she, and justice had been done, but she hadn't filed within the time limit that was allowed. And so she didn't get redress. But she, after the court decided against her, Supreme Court decided against her on a statute, went to the Congress, the Congress supported, it was the first bill that President Obama signed. And the, that's a reminder that on statutory matters, the Supreme Court doesn't have the final word. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was in dissent on that Supreme Court ruling about Lily Ledbetter. And she said to Congress, you fix this. Well, when the Supreme Court decides on a constitutional matter, if people don't like that, they can fix that too. But that means amending the constitution. That's a pretty big complicated process. So understanding that on the constitution, the court has the final say. And secondly, this is what we learned as a public as a whole in the Dobbs decision. Uh, the Supreme Court can change its mind across time about what it is and is not constitutionally protected. But until it changes its mind, the ruling that it that stands is the one that is in place on a constitutional matter. It's, it's really important to understand and accept that. And Dobbs features that for us. That basically says, like it or not, the Supreme Court said that a right that was in the Constitution, according to an earlier court, is not in the Constitution, states this now devolves back to the states under our federalist system. So I think we're learning this year, we'll know when we do next year's survey, about what it is that happens when the Supreme Court makes a ruling and what does that do to the, 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 the political terrain. In this case, the Supreme Court argued we're returning it to the people by which they meant to a voting process in the states. They were basically saying we're a federalist system, it devolves to the state in the absence of a ruling from the Supreme Court that's national. Now, and I, I recognize that it's easy to bemoan the lack of, of civic knowledge, but isn't some of the decline due to a shift in how we've even perceived education that, that education, say at the high school level, is designed to get you into the best possible college and that when you declare a major, who, you know, it's about getting a job. So doesn't that just sort of systematically put the emphasis on civics in the on the back burner and sort of in a, and devaluing its importance? No, the, there, I, I have an enormous amount of respect and sympathy for teachers in classrooms. We expect them to do just an enormous amount with, with limited resources. And after the pandemic, they, we now know that we had, the children need, need to catch up. They just couldn't get the level of learning that we, we would have hoped that they would have gotten at their grade levels because of the circumstances of the pandemic. So in this environment, we ask teachers to prioritize a whole lot of things. And you're really talking about what do they prioritize into the, the number of hours that they've got in the day. And we've prioritized certifying to get to college. We've prioritized STEM. We've, we've, we've prioritized and in the process of prioritizing science, engineering, math, those sorts of categories of knowledge, something gets crowded out. 
and part of what's gotten crowded out is civics. Now, sometimes civics has shifted into another place in the curriculum, so we have to be careful about talking about it. So there are courses that are called social studies that, that have a lot of what we've called, we've called traditional civics education. There are courses that are called history that have a lot of what we've traditionally called civics education. So it's possible that some of this is happening, but it's happening elsewhere. But you're seeing a movement now across the states recognizing that our, our understanding of ourselves as citizens is really important in making us a country. Um, so there, there are efforts across the states now to increase the likelihood that there is robust civics in high school curricula. And the innovations across the states are substantial. Um, and the, the reason that I know where it's happening is because they often start out their move to make the changes in their curriculum and make the legislative changes that will empower the school systems by citing our research that says people can't identify the branches of government. They don't know what rights are in the First Amendment. So I see those coming through our press clips and as a result have a way of saying, oh, there's another state that is addressing an important problem. And the, it, it's not that the other things that are being taught aren't important, they are. This is important as well. The question is, how do we make it possible to get all of this done? We'd like to see more flipped class learning where some of this is offloaded into time at home. And we'd also like to see all of us thinking that we have an obligation to help everyone become more educated. And that's we in the journalistic community, that's we in the college community, that's we who are parents at home. The Civics Renewal Network, which is run through my policy center, is a, a, a coalition of the major organizations that produce no-cost materials about civics. It's the Library of Congress and the National Archives. Um, it's the Constitution Center. It's Justice O'Connor's iCivics. It's our Amber Classroom. If parents would like to find a place to help their children understand basic constitutional concepts, basic civics concepts, they can go to Civics Renewal Network and they'll find the best of the best. And they can create a menu across all of these great providers of things that they would like when it's a rainy day and they've got kids at home who are just bored with the world, um, or they're doing homeschooling uh, to increase the likelihood that the parental role in educating the citizenry is able to be carried out efficiently by parents. They don't have time to create those kinds of materials, but they're there online and they don't cost anything, Civics Renewal Network. And the materials we produce are called the Annenberg Classroom Materials. Um, we have films about the nation's history, about its injustices, about how we've addressed them, what we still need to do, how the courts played a role in that, and what it said about our constitution. And that's on Annenberg Classroom. Uh, this year, we put out a film on, on, for example, freedom of speech in high schools. What, what, are, what are the constraints on student speech in high schools and schools, elementary schools that aren't in place once they're adults in the citizenry? Uh, you, you mentioned uh, former Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who who's committed her post-Supreme Court life to teaching civics and expanding it. The public, in the public discourse, there is, and this is, this is in my view, uh, an over-reliance advocating the civics be taught in schools. And I'm, I'm not dispelling that mission, but it's always felt uh, that it doesn't do service to the complexity of American democracy in that civics to me seems like something that's an ongoing mission for every citizen. Your thoughts? And, and that, that was a theme of Justice O'Connor. Uh, that led to her creation of iCivics. And the uh, part of the notion is that we're constantly confronting opportunities. I, uh, I'm now a grandparent, but when, when I was a, a parent, uh, our then seven-year-old son stomped his foot and said, you're infringing on my rights of free speech. 
And it was a wonderful moment because I said, okay, let's look at why you think you have rights of free speech. So let's go find a copy of the Constitution. Now, that was before we had the internet. So we went and found a copy of the Constitution on one of the bookshelves. So now let's see what the First Amendment says. Oh, you see, it says Congress shall make no law. It says nothing about your mother shall make no law. So that was my moment as a parent in which you know, the, uh, there's a small teaching moment to say to my son, sorry, no free speech rights in my house. <laughs> and we, 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 see that we see these a lot, which is why you know, the, the business community now, for example, is standing up efforts across the business community to talk about civics in the workplace. And one of the things they're talking about, and this speaks to speech and assembly, is how do we con constructively engage in, our, in, in adjudicating our differences? And once you say, how do we constructively do that? Because we're gonna have differences. How do we constructively do that? We have to do it in the workplace. We have to get along. We have to produce whatever it is the workplace is producing. We're able to start to say, and then how do we constructively engage about politics? And how do we constructively engage in our system? So what are the levers of power? How do we exercise them? You know, what, what are the most efficient ways for us to accomplish our community objectives? So the business community is stepping up to say, we've got an obligation too. The courts have been doing it for decades. They bring high school and grade school children in and middle school children in on Constitution Day to talk with them. Uh, their judges and lawyers and communities go out on Constitution Day in order to talk to classrooms. And you also have, and I, I love this process, you have schools that take the students to immigration ceremonies so that they can welcome the, the immigrants who are now citizens at their at their you know, there's their the official ceremony by which they're becoming citizens. And the children in many of the school districts that do this welcome the immigrants. But in the process, the children take a look at the civics test that the immigrants had to pass to become citizens. And in some cases say, oh, I'm not sure I know all of those things. Uh, a, couple, couple, a couple things there. Number one, I wish that Kathleen Hall Jameson had talked to my father because <laughs> I, made a, I made a similar declaration as your son and my father just quietly took me outside and he asked me to walk outside the gate and he told me to close the gate. <laughs> and then he, then he said, okay, on that side of the gate, you have free speech protections. On this side of the gate, <laughs> you have none. So I would have preferred your response. <laughs> that was my introduction to the First Amendment. So I just... <laughs> I, I love that. I love it, and you know the, the, the thing that, that is that is so wonderful about it is the I, I've been I've collected these stories from my friends over the years. The likelihood I think that at some point in the development of a child, the child will say, "I have a right to free speech." is actually pretty high because we're as as children are developing, they're testing boundaries, and adults yes. are saying, "No, here's the boundary." Well, <laughs> right. and, and and the culture has taught the child that there is this thing called right of free speech. So the child thinks, "I'm going to invoke it, whatever it means." So perhaps what we ought to do, Byron, is to say to, to parents, we think you're going to have this moment at some point in your development <laughs> with the children. We suggest that you remind them that there's a constitution, here's the First Amendment, and the operative noun is Congress. Well, and I would, I would only amend your statement by saying, and after, after putting forth that declaration, we go, here's the Kathleen Hall Jameson option, and here's the Bruce Williams option. So you pick which one is preferable. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And, and the, but the question is, did it work? 
So, oh, yeah. I, hey, I'm still talking about it. That was what 50 years ago. I'm still talking about it. I still remember it. So I guess it did work. <laughs> yeah, the, the, and, and, there, there's so many wonderful moments in the, in the process of parenting where you're, you're you're able to essentially perform the teaching role of the parent. And I, I think we don't spend enough time appreciating the extent to which uh, we're, we're shaping the children by, by everything that we do around them and everything we say to them. And so when we model constructive engagement with others, when we respect different points of view, when we explain why some kinds of language just not appropriate in our house, this is why we don't dehumanize people. You know, part of what we're doing is inculcating the norms of citizenship, constructive engagement um, in ways that a teacher can't do as well because parents have a unique form of influence. Uh, as someone by myself who teaches civics to adults and college students, it strikes me that civics is often taught, in my view, with an over-reliance on what happened mm -hmm. without the corresponding burden explaining why it is significant. And at some point, don't the what and the why need to be married to fully understand the American project? Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. At, the, at one point, there, there was a, a, a statement in, in some part of the National Dialogue in which someone said, and this person doesn't even know what year Paul Revere wrote. And my response was to say, I don't care what year Paul Revere wrote. In fact, I don't even care that Paul Revere wrote or whether Paul Revere wrote. You know, I, I want to understand what it is the founders were doing when they set up the constitution and why it has the limitations it has. What were the, the circumstances in which they were working that got built into our constitution that we have had across time to grapple with and change the constitution. I mean, I, the, when, when I was growing up, my, my, my grandmother was still alive and she'd marched for suffrage. And I had, I had a very real sense that the constitution could be amended because my grandmother marched for, su for, for suffrage and she thought she'd played a role in getting suffrage for women. Well, at some, to some extent, collectively, everyone who marched for, for suffrage did because the hypocrisy of not permitting women to vote in light of World War I, where we were campaigning on Wilsonian democracy around the world was such that all of those protests collectively increased the likelihood that those in Washington would say yes, and those in states would say yes, and you would, as a result, get the change. So understanding how and why we, we got changed and where the injustices were that were remedied across time and where the injustices are that haven't been remedied yet and what the, the levers of power are that can be exercised to try to get those changes, that's all far more important than knowing how many amendments there are to the constitution or what year it was signed or what year Paul Revere wrote, if indeed he wrote. Uh, talk on that note, um, talk about the Ameri American democracy vis-a-vis uh, -vis what seems to be, and you, you've done the research, so you would know better than I, but it seems to be a growing uninformed populace uh, that devalues, in my view, that in, to be a citizen, there are we have rights and we also have responsibilities. Talk about that if you would. Yeah, the, we, we tend to teach through a rights frame as opposed to a responsibilities frame. And I think that's a big mistake. 
um, the, I, I, I like to remind when, when I'm talking to, to young children, I like to remind you know, young children in classrooms that there are countries that mandate voting. Um, and you know, the United States does not mandate voting, nor should the United States mandate voting. And there would be real constitutional issues if the United States tried to mandate voting. But why, why do we want to vote? What should motivate us to vote? And what's the value of exercising the franchise at every level of government? If you've got a right and you don't exercise it for practical purposes, you don't have the right. It's not doing anything for you. And other people are making decisions for you. You know, the same thing with, with jury duty. You know, the you know, people who decide they, they, they really want to get out of jury duty run the risk that if they're ever unjustly accused, there aren't people in the jury who are going to be able to fairly judge that case and potentially you know, say that, that this is unjust use of power against them. So you know, trying to understand what responsibilities are entailed in citizenship. And I, I like to think about the First Amendment as entailing responsibilities as well. So when you say we have the right to peaceably assemble, a lot of people, you know, don't catch the word peaceably in there. The responsibility is peaceable. The right is assembly. So, and the implied by those rights are that we want to be able to hold government accountable. Well, why do we have the rights if we're not going to actually exercise them to hold government accountable? I hear the constitution telling me my obligation as a citizen is to use those rights to try to stand up against injustices, to rectify problems, and to try to hold those in government, in government account when they engage in forms of abuse. So the thinking about rights and responsibilities is, I think, the frame through which we ought to teach civics. Now, wouldn't that responsibility also include, let's say, Byron Williams and Kathleen Hall Jamison vehemently agree on disagree on everything, <laughs> uh, uh, but yet? There's a baseline where I have a responsibility to uphold your rights, even though I disagree with everything you say, because my rights are inextricably linked to yours, whether I agree with you or not. Yeah, I love that point. That's just an incredibly important point. And I also like the idea that when Jefferson set up the rules for the House of Representatives, um, he really said some things that were important about the way in which we can constructively engage each other. Because what he said in the rules of the House, and these are revoted on every two years, so every two years Congress has to say, yes, we adopt these. Um, he said that you shouldn't engage in personalities, uh, by which he meant you shouldn't attack the person. You should engage the ideas of the person. And so the assumption that the other person is a person of goodwill and integrity, and that we may differ philosophically, is the idea that is underlying Jefferson's rules. You may not think the person is a person of integrity, but you don't call the person a liar. If you call the person a liar, you impugn their integrity, you're censured in Congress, or at least you're supposed to be. That's what the rules say. So if we think in terms of dealing with people with whom we disagree, or dealing with people about whom we disagree in some matters, we don't disagree with somebody about everything. You know, thinking about what are the rules of engagement? How do we exercise you know, the, you know, our, our responsibilities to work collectively with everyone to try to get outcomes that work for everybody presupposes that we're going to be able to engage and not simply go to violence if we disagree or say, I've got more on my side than your side, so you're wrong and I'm right. And I think those are the entailments of a democratic system. Those are the implications of our system. And as a result, those exercises in schools and in businesses in which you know, people think through how we solve, how we, how we adjudicate our differences is really important. And I think understanding how the courts have set up procedures to do it is important. 
because the courts have rules of evidence that keep certain kinds of evidence out of the court. Hearsay is kept out of the court. If we just said, I'm going to keep hearsay out of my discourse with others, you could clean up a reasonable amount of discourse. It would be, you'd be taking a lot of, of information out. You say, I'm not going to attack the person. I'm always going to address the argument. Well, that would take a whole lot of what's online that is just simply you know, vitriol you know, out of play for a constructive engagement. You, you just raised an issue, underli underlining issue that, that a number of my students, at least initially, struggle with. And that is the civics knowledge, this American democracy, however defined, that the journey, the process is just as important as the actual outcome. Talk, speak to that if you would. Yeah, I think the journey is important and the outcome is important as well. But if you don't understand the journey, you don't know how to get to the outcome. And the, the, we, the films that we put together for Annenberg Classroom are films that feature moments in which you know, individuals persisted in their attempts to create change and worked through the system in ways that ultimately produced outcomes for them. But sometimes it requires incredible tenacity and sometimes it takes a long time. So if you think about the transition between the Cherokee Nation cases and where, which would give us the trail of tears where you know, the president of the United States, Jackson, basically said, I don't care what the court says, it doesn't have any army, and displaced Native peoples and forced them onto a march out of their own lands. Uh, and you think of the transition from that to Cooper v. Aaron, where Dwight D. Eisenhower enforced the desegregation rulings of the Supreme Court, even though he disagreed with them. That's a journey across time of our structures, where presidents came to understand that they needed to honor decisions by a Supreme Court. And so, the, so the, the journeys across time can be journeys of individuals who persist in accomplishing things. Kor the Korematsu decision is ultimately held not to be good law because of the persistence of those who argued that that was an unjust ruling. That was the ruling that legitimized Japanese internment during World War II, understanding that that stayed as, as established law until the last decade is, is that, you know, that's an astonishing thing when people say, what do you mean? Well, yeah, finally, Roberts appended to a ruling that, that though, no, that was no longer good law. So yeah, how long did it take to ultimately say that on behalf of courts? And why did it say, say take so long? Ultimately, the Korematsu decision in public opinion is established as being illegitimate. That decision was decided on falsified evidence um, and is a, a shameful part of our history. And you, you look at the, the law, the time it took to overturn Plessy versus Ferguson. Why did it take us so long? It took generations and generations. And how did we ultimately get it changed? That's the study of the journey. The outcome is voting rights legislation. The outcome is establishment that separate isn't equal. I, I, I would add to your, to your list, uh, the ratification of the 15th Amendment took mm -hmm. another 15 years to get to suffrage. Another 50 mm -hmm. years, I'm sorry, to get mm -hmm. to suffrage. Another, another mm -hmm. half century. Um, I'm also glad that you mentioned... Um, Andrew well, Jackson. And, and, Sorry, and importantly, that, that wasn't the end. We needed the voting rights legislation of the 60s, you know, yes. essentially. And, and now you don't have some protections in place in our legislative structures and in our, our court structures that were once put in place. So you know, I, I like to think of this as a struggle toward making it better within a structure that has the means to do it if we'll act on them.
Well, all of this is, is leading me to, um, you know, I'm, I'm particularly glad that you mentioned Andrew Jackson, who famously said Justice Marshall has made his decision. Now let me see him enforce it in, in, <laughs> in relation to the Trail of Tears. Do you worry that we're on a path to where we, we see uh, public opinion of the court diminishing based on outcomes, I would say, are, are you worried that some president um, in the future might take the Andrew Jackson approach to Supreme Court decisions? And where would that lead us if, if that were the case? Yeah, it, it's a really important question. And the, the, the backdrop for this is public approval of the court swings across time. We study this year. We're going to be putting a press release out on right before the new court starts its, its session in October. We'll be putting out the, a big block of study about where the public perception of the Supreme Court is right now. And we've been studying it for more than 20 years. The When Supreme Court justices rule on consequential controversial matters in a way that was predictable by their, their perceived ideology, that is the ideology of the president who appointed them or submitted them for nomination, when they rule that way, the public is a little worried about the Supreme Court, sometimes more than a little worried. When they act against what you would anticipate their ideolo ideology would dictate, the public approves more highly. And what does that say? That says that the public understands that they're not supposed to be political. And if they're just one more political branch, if they just do what their politics dictate, then the public wonders whether we have a third independent branch. That's a kind of visceral understanding that we have branches with different functions. And we can see across time, uh, with Justice Roberts saving the Affordable Care Act, public approval of the court went up. Well, they didn't expect that someone who's nominated by a Republican was going to save legislation that was a crowning achievement of a Democratic president. So the public is attuned at some level because we see the statistical change in our survey across time. So what would happen if a president defied a rule on the Constitution by the court? Now, really interesting question because the court doesn't have an army. The court doesn't. The court, the court essentially has rhetorical suasion. My assumption would be that those in the legislative branch would act in order to ensure that the president did what was expected under the Constitution and move to impeach. But the question is, would they move to impeach if, in fact, you've got highly polarized partisans in both parties. And as a result, impeachment is not something that will be acceptable to the party whose president is in power. So it's a real question, really important question for which I do not have an answer, but the constitution has an answer. The answer is that would be a move to impeach. The question is, is that a recourse under the constitution in polarized times? And I don't think we know the answer to that right now. I think we knew it in the past. I don't think we know it now. I mean, Richard Nixon resigned under threat from the Republicans that if he did not, he was, he was going to be impeached and convicted. So if one is listening to the broadcast right now and they fall into the category, the amorphous category, and as I get older, it's even more amorphous, it's known as middle-aged. Um, is it too late to learn this stuff? What do you say to that? No, I, I think that we, we are constantly learning. And the reason I know that is not because of our studies of the Constitution, it's because of our studies of health. So the we just monkeypox just appeared. Nobody knew what monkeypox was before this. I mean, there had been a small outbreak in the United States before, but it, it's not, we didn't expect that if we said the word monkeypox, anybody would say, yes, I'm familiar with that term. And over a two month period, 
public knowledge about it doubled. And that's public knowledge across the age spectrum. So there are people who are learning new things. When something is salient, people learn quickly. We saw the same thing during COVID. People's knowledge about transmission of COVID increased very rapidly. It increased very rapidly across all age groups. Now, there are people who didn't agree about how you should interpret the knowledge, but the knowledge went up predictably. So do we learn across the lifespan? Yes. Are we capable of learning new things in polarized times that are ideologically inconvenient to our beliefs? That's another question. Mm. Now, I, I, I don't wish to um, call out any specific names, mm. but there are members, in my view, of the House of Representatives and perhaps the Senate, based on some of their public statements, seem to struggle with concepts that are antithetical to a civics education. Are we, are we moving to a place where those guardrails of American democracy that were once important um, are not as important as long as candidate X says what I want him or her to say, regardless of the civics impact of, of what they're articulating. Yeah, I mean, the, the reason there's so much concern right now about the, the resilience of our democratic systems is that you're, you're seeing in, in national surveys, and it's not just a survey, you're seeing different survey firms, different scholars finding the same thing. You're seeing people who are reporting that um, there, we may need to resort to violence in order to ensure, and then you fill in the blanks, X political outcome. Um, our system was predicated on the assumption that we could adjudicate our differences without violence. And that, that as a result, um, you, you would get consent of the governed to positions that they did, that individuals did not personally agree with, but were, were democratically decided upon, that were voted and handled in a structurally appropriate fashion through legislation, through the courts, and through the executive. And the, the question now is, have we so polarized public opinion, and have we so you know, undercut uh, respect for what is knowable um, and what can be established as being consensually granted fact, what can we reasonably know to be a given, uh, that, that we no longer have the basic assumptions that hold our system together. And it's that violence finding in particular that worries me. Uh, we've got a book on the 2020 election that's coming out in January called Democracy Amid Crises. And part of what it does is looks at those kinds of data and also looks at assumptions among parts of the electorate that the 2020 election was not fairly decided. Um, and the assumption among some that if my candidate isn't elected, the election could not have been democratically decided. We should always worry about potential abuses or incompetence in any system. But the 2020 election is the most studied election that we have ever had and most carefully adjudicated election that we've ever had in the history of the country. That election was fairly and freely decided. And those who do not grant that are, are raising troubling questions about their willingness to consent to democratically agreed upon outcomes through representative processes within existing structures. And that's worrisome. It's, it's a predicate of our system that we're going to agree with outcomes, even though we don't like them when they're decided through our system in appropriate fashion. And that's what an election is. On Independence Day, I have a two-part uh, tradition. The first part is that I wake up and I listen to the recording of the Declaration of Independence as recorded by National Public Radio. Then later that morning, I will walk over because in Winston-Salem, new, new citizens are sworn in on that day. Mm -hmm. 
And I used to, it started with me going by myself. And then I told a couple people, then a couple people went and it got to the point that I, I would like lead like a, a cadre of 25 people. And the takeaway is that it never gets old for me because you see people, because as an American, I'm grandfathered into this project, but you, you see people who come through a different route and you see them give taking the oath and they're holding back tears and they can barely repeat the words because they're so moved about the promises. Talk about how important do you think it is for Americans to, under, to understand that experience that um, just being grandfathered in is not enough to really embrace the American project? Yeah, they, we, we tend in the scholarly community to think of people as cognitive creatures. When in fact, you know, we don't make decisions based on, on pure, pure rational calculation. We make decisions largely based on affect, emotion, the kind of visceral responses tied into cognition that we then use to explain those kinds of impulses. And part of what that, that says is that they, some terms that have been largely taken out of the national vocabulary either need to be put back in or we need to find substitute words that mean the same thing. I mean, one used to be able, and I am an elderly, elderly woman, one used to be able to say that on 4th of July in most communities in the United States, there would be 4th of July ceremonies. There would be a parade. The flag would be marched by with people with marching bands. And it, it was a celebratory day in which people would stand and they would hold their hands over their hearts when the flag went by. That was an emotional response. That wasn't an intellectual response. And the same thing with the Veterans Day, the same thing with Memorial Day. We had rituals built into the culture in which you would you would talk about what it meant to be in the country and to serve the country. You hope for just causes, in those cases, honoring those people who served in the military. But the response was an emotional response. It was an affective response. It was a response that made you proud to be part of that thing we called America, that these people had been part of who had served and sacrificed for. And it revivified your sense of the values that they were committed to and that you were committed, committed to. It put the emotional piece back into saying, I am an American. And we've lost some of that. And to the extent that we're feeling less of those feelings and more anger and hatred, we've got a problem because you can build community out of feelings of pride and of emotional attachment. You can't build a community out of hate and division. You can build communities um, who are antagonistic communities, but you can't build a community. And we should be a community that builds greater communities until we build up to have a community called the nation. So yeah, I, I, I love the ritual that you've developed. I, I think it, it, it's important to see what it means to people from other countries to go through our process of naturalization and to realize they're feeling those things. That's part of the reason I love taking school children to nationalization ceremonies because it gives them a moment to understand that something that they take for granted is something very, very precious to these people. Mm. Uh, before we close, I, I would really like to have you um, discuss the mission of the Annenberg Public Policy Center and, and, and specifically hone in on not just this report, but some of the other things that you provide that can help um, citizens with their um, civic knowledge. Uh, Amber Public Policy Center is the home of factcheck.org, uh, which we founded in 2003. It was the first major uh, fact-checking organization in the United States. 
uh, devoted to looking at claims by political leaders in their ads and debates at the national level. So we actually made the promise when we started that any claim made in a presidential debate we would look at and any ad by a presidential candidate we would look at. And the reason for saying any claim in either was that way you ensure that you're not being selective. So you ensure that everything gets looked at, not just the things that you think are problematic because you disagree with them because they're not consistent with your ideology. Uh, Factcheck.org uh, has a sub-site that's called SciCheck, which focuses on health claims, which I think is particularly important uh, in times in which we've, we've got to get good health information quickly in order to make good judgments of how, how to best protect ourselves and each other from a health threat. And I think of factcheck.org in the same way. It's trying to protect individuals from misinformation that, if believed, might yield a vote that you wouldn't cast if you were correctly informed. Uh, so I'm very proud of factcheck.org and sidecheck their projects at the Annenberg Public Policy Center. Uh, we also do a, a lot of work in the healthcare space in general, particularly uh, trying to minimize the likelihood that media do bad things to us. So uh, we analyze portrayals in television and in other forms of, of fictional entertainment um, of risk behaviors, particularly for children. Uh, we're very concerned about vaping and smoking. Um, if we don't start smoking by the age of 20, the likelihood you're going to start smoking after that is very, very small. And if you're a chronic smoker after the age of 20, one half of those people who are going to die of a smoking-related illness. So we'd like to increase the likelihood that no child grows up to be a smoker and dies of a smoking-related illness. We've done a lot of work in that space. Uh, we've done work as well in portrayal of suicide. Um, we want everyone to know that suicidal ideation is more common than most people think. Um, it, media portrayals of it that are approving can trigger the likelihood that in the moment someone acts in a way that two days later they might not act. If there's a gun in the home and it's not locked up, increases the likelihood that when, per, when a person is experiencing suicidal ideation, that they will actually end their own lives. Where two, three days later, if they don't, they would have regretted having done it. So we've done a great deal about media portrayal and suicide, including creating guidelines for media coverage of, of suicide. Those are things that I'm particularly proud of. Anyone who'd like more information should go to Annenberg Public Policy Center website. Catherine Hall Jamison, uh, aside from you admonishing your son, it, it brought back horrific memories of my own father and, and my experience with the First Amendment. It has truly been an honor to be in conversation with you. Uh, thank you so much for being on the Public Morality today. It's been wonderful to be with you, Byron. Have a good day. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Rally on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click Open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the Pullman Corrality at their studios. The Pullman Corrality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Pullman Morality, I'm Byron Williams.